morning, everyone. Hello. Hello online, people who are still at home or in the bath watching. <laughs> I've been in quite a reflective mood over the last couple of weeks. I've spent a lot of time thinking back over the journey of Coastline over these last six years, partly because we celebrated, didn't we, a few weeks ago, our sixth birthday, uh, and partly because of our big news and our moving on at the end of this year. I've been in quite a reflective, maybe nostalgic mood, and, and as I've reflected on the highlights and the wins and the joys of the last six years, I've also been reminded of just how much everything that we have invested to make it happen. All the effort, all the energy, all the time, all the money, all your prayers, all your hard work, all your generosity. And it struck me as I reflected on this that to build anything worthwhile involves sacrifice. It always comes at a significant cost to build something worthwhile. It's, it's true of anything that is worthwhile that, that you might build, whether a church like Coastline, or whether you're building a home, whether you're building a family, whether you're building a business. I quite like watching Grand Designs. Anyone else a fan of Grand Designs? Um, and when people on that show are, are building their dream home, it costs them so, so much. I'm, I'm also a fan of Dragon's Den. Anyone else like Dragon's Den? I love watching those entrepreneurs come with this dream, this idea, this product, and pitch to these mega wealthy uh, uh, investors. And oh my gosh, it costs these people so much just to get there, to, to, to start up this little dream, this little business. Or, or think if, if, if you're a, a parent, you know how much it takes to raise a family, to build a strong family culture, how much time your kids need, all the sleepless nights, all the love and the care, all of the discipline, the consistency, the provision. It costs a lot to build a family. <laughs> Thinking about, about the discipline it takes, I, I, I heard a brilliant quote from Ellie Mumford, ever wise and witty, um, the founder of the Vineyard Movement in the UK here. She said, I already like my kids. I discipline them so that other people will like them. <laughs> so that was great. If you're building anything worthwhile, whether you're building a family, a home, a business, a church, it is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time and effort and money and creative imagination. Well, today um, is our annual Giving Sunday. This happens once a year when you arrive to church to find the pledge forms on your seat. And anyone that's been here before knows what I'm about to ask you. I'm about to ask you to give money to the ministry and mission of Coastline. And I want to be really upfront with you from the very get-go. Um, there's no bait and switch here. We haven't locked the doors. Um, I want to be really unashamedly, unapologetically upfront with you from the beginning. I want to invite you to invest with us in extending the kingdom of God here. We want to see God's kingdom come here in Bournemouth as in heaven. We are building something incredibly significant and incredibly worthwhile. But if we're going to succeed, we need everybody to share the cost. In the months prior 
to planting coastline. I preached a series from a little book in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. It's a story of a man called Nehemiah who rebuilds the ruined walls of Jerusalem. And God spoke to me powerfully in that season where we planted coastline out of um, a, a, a previous church that some of you were a part of. Uh, and God spoke to me so powerfully through that beautiful little story and about how we were building coastline, not completely from scratch, but using some of the stones, if you like, from the old church, some of the good godly people that were with us already. And we were going to use and build on those stones to plant a brand new church. And today I want to revisit the story of Nehemiah. Some of you might not have read it for six years. Because it feels like in this post-lockdown, post-COVID era, we are building again. We are in a rebuilding stage, rebuilding some of the things that have been lost or paused because of the pandemic. So I'm going to start by quickly retelling the story for those of you that don't know it well, and I want to draw a few key points from what we can learn from Nehemiah's rebuilding project. So turn in your Bibles on your phone, or maybe the Bibles are in the chairs in front of you, um, or you brought your own, and we're going to start in Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah is about a third of the way through your Bible, just before uh, the book of Psalms, if you can find it there. And if you can look at an actual Bible, that'll help, because I'm going to whiz through the story, and you can follow me through page by page. So we start in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and we meet a man called Nehemiah, who is living in the city of Susa in Babylon. Decades have passed since the Babylonians had conquered Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, and exiled many of the Jews back to Babylon. We read in uh, verse 2, it says, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He spends weeks, months on his knees, praying, repenting, fasting and in this in this moment of time god births a vision in nehemiah's heart to return to to jerusalem the city of god and to rebuild the walls time passes it gets about six months further on down the line he's going about his regular business uh, chapter 1 verse 11 says that he was cup bearer to the king so he's in the regal court and he's going about his daily business and he's serving the king his wine sipping it beforehand to check it hadn't been poisoned and the king of, of babylon king artaxerxes notices that that nehemiah is sad that he is downcast and we pick up the story in chapter 2 verse 2 because the king says to Nehemiah, why are you looking sad? Nehemiah takes a deep breath and thinks, okay, this is my moment. I can, I can tell him. He says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried. 
so that I can rebuild it. And the Lord moves the pagan heart of this, of this king, Artaxerxes, and he, he relents and he lets Nehemiah go back to Jerusalem. And it's a beautiful bit of the story because we see in the rest of chapter 2 that not only does the king give Nehemiah permission to go, he also gives him protection in the form of letters to all the rulers of the provinces through which Nehemiah will travel, and also an armed escort. And he gives him provision from the royal forest uh, for timber, for the beams and the, the, the gates and all that kind of stuff. It's amazing. So Nehemiah arrives a, a little while later, and he shares with the, the, the remnant, the, the, the few that are there, uh, his vision to rebuild the city walls. And the people start getting excited. They get behind Nehemiah. They say yes to helping him. They believe in him and in the vision, and they get to work. If you look at chapter 3, I I haven't got time just to to whiz through it, but essentially chapter 3 is just a long list of all the people who help. Everyone who gives their physical labor, who helps to to rebuild the walls and the gates. And what's beautiful here is this sense of coming together, this sense of community with everybody who contributes, everyone mucking in, helping where they can. You've got men and women, you've got nobles and servants, tradesmen and perfume makers, rulers and residents, everyone getting together, working hard towards a shared goal. It's beautiful. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, you see some opposition and some challenges to his leadership. And then, at the end of chapter 6, in verse 15 and 16, we read this. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Wow. When all the enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. He's done it. In 52 days, having faced significant opposition and overcome many obstacles, Nehemiah and all the people have rebuilt the city walls. This is an incredible achievement, not just because of the scale and the speed of the work, but because of the symbolic importance of the city walls being completed. If the ruins and the rubble indicated a people conquered and in decline, then the completed walls and the huge gates were a powerful show of strength and a symbol of Yahweh's blessing and favor on them again. This was Yahweh's city restored And it restored to the people a sense of identity. A rebuilt Jerusalem symbolized the renewal of God's chosen people and a place to call home. And there's a parallel for us, I believe. As we rebuild post-pandemic. Because there is much of our identity as coastline that we need to rebuild. So much of our identity, because of the pandemic, has been eroded. Much of what we've been known for and is distinctive about coastline needs our attention again. We have spent, what, 18 months just trying to keep the family together. Just trying to help us all stay connected to make church as accessible as possible with online and and all the the, the video recording and stuff that we're doing. But you know, we all know, that's not really church, is it? Watching at home, it's not really church. 
So much of our identity has been lost in this season, and the rebuild needs to, means we need to focus again on what being family means. To, to, to gather around some of our, our core distinctives of encouragement and empowerment and worship and, and compassion because we're rebuilding this sense of identity just by gathering, just by worshiping. We're rebuilding being a family, being a community, being together again, face-to-face, in the room. We're rebuilding as a family that cares for each other, encourages each other, prays for each other, challenges each other, walks alongside when life is difficult. We're rebuilding that sense of identity and character as Coastline. We're saying this is who we are. This is what we're about. This is why we do what we do. We're rebuilding. What's interesting as the that we realize about Nehemiah's rebuilding project is that it's actually just one phase of a much grander and bigger rebuild. The first phase was actually about 75 years prior to, to this bit of the story that I've read for you, when a man called Zerubbabel, or Zerubbabel, who knows what his name was, uh, he led a large group of uh, the exiled Jews, and they returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. You can read about this in the first half of the book, Ezra. And in Nehemiah chapter 7, we see that Nehemiah discovers a historical genealogical record of those who have been the first to return. Chapter 7, verse 5, if you're following with me along. Now, I reckon it must have been so incredibly moving for Nehemiah to to discover this scroll with a list of all those names of the first early pioneers, those pioneering people who were courageous enough and bold enough to be the first exiles to return and to start the rebuild. And we read too, Nehemiah sees how incredibly generous those early pioneers were. We see in chapter 7, verses 7 to 72, where, where, where Nehemiah reads that people gave their gold and silver and costly garments towards the temple rebuild. It was just stunning. So you see, Nehemiah is building on Zerubbabel's legacy. And of course, and you think about it, of course it makes sense that the rebuild would start with the rebuilding of the temple first, because the people needed a physical place to worship Yahweh. The temple was the place where they gathered to sing their songs and perform their sacrifices to meet with God. The temple, the rebuilding and restoration of the temple was so significant because it symbolized a spiritual renewal for the people. So it's a restoration of their identity with the city walls, but also with that, the, the rebuild of the temple, it's a, a spiritual renewal. And if you draw a parallel to us today, it's as a kind of similar to what we're doing in this post-pandemic rebuild. Much of our attention has been and needs to be on our ability to gather again, in person, to worship and encounter God together. Just like in Zerubbabel and Nehemiah's day, there is a spiritual renewal that needs to happen because we have all suffered from not being able to meet together. Let's be honest. Maybe there's been some apathy, some cynicism that's crept into your heart. Maybe there's been some deconstruction or some critique that has happened in your head. Certainly many of us have gone cold. We've lost our spiritual fervor, our zeal. Feel a little bit lost without a sense of purpose or passion. And so part of this rebuilding that we're doing right now needs to be a spiritual renewal 
which rightly focuses on celebrating and making the most of having a physical place to meet together and to worship God. Look around you. People are starting to come back to church. We are full again today. And the point is, the reason why we're making such a a big deal about being able to gather again is because we couldn't for so long. And now we're thinking, we're saying to you again and again, you've got to be here. You've got to come back to church. It's not church unless we are together, collectively, face-to-face, in the flesh, worshipping God here in St. Albans. It's a huge part of who we are. We have to get back to prioritizing corporate worship. And by worship, I mean sung worship, but I mean all the things that we do on a Sunday when we gather, praying together, breaking bread together, learning from the Bible together, all of it, which you simply cannot do. You cannot replace and you cannot replicate on your own. You can't. You can't have corporate worship on your own. Church isn't really church if it's through a screen. You can't be at church if you're at the beach or at your desk catching up online. If you're watching church, it's not corporate worship unless you're here in person in the building. You need to be here. After the temple is rebuilt, and then the city walls are rebuilt, and the gates are, are, are rehung, there is then a much bigger and much, much more important rebuilding work that needs to happen. And Nehemiah realizes that it is a rebuilding of a society and a culture. And it happens not by transforming the physical landscape, or the architecture, it comes from transforming the heart. That's why Ezra, the priest, this old gnarly dude who's been serving the Lord for years, who returned to Jerusalem actually a few years before Nehemiah, why the two of them, Ezra and Nehemiah, team up once the walls are rebuilt, because they both know there needs to be a moral and ethical renewal that happens next, a rebuilding based on a broader vision of what the kingdom of God looks like lived out. And so with the walls intact and the gates freshly hung, the most important phase of the rebuild begins, and Ezra is invited to read the Torah in front of the crowd of people. You can see that in chapter 8. And you see in this moment here, as Ezra reads, the people bow down in awe and they start to worship. And then for seven days nonstop, they celebrate a festival. And Ezra, bless him, reads for seven days nonstop. And then as a community, we see them respond to hearing the law read. They confess their sins, they repent, they renew their covenant relationship with God. And they basically sign up and say, yes, we want to be your chosen people again. And as Ezra reads the Torah, it's like they're captivated by, with a picture of what, of what life lived in the reality of the kingdom looks like of being this new community of justice and of compassion, of caring for the poor, of being witnesses to the surrounding nations, of blessing and of bounty and of favor. It's a moment of collective cultural reset, and it's glorious. It's glorious. It's incredible. And you know what? That's what we want to see. Isn't that what we want to see? We need, in this season of rebuilding, we need that 
cultural reset. And to do it, we need your help. We need your, we need your help. We need your effort and your time and your money to do it. The vision, just like in Nehemiah's day, is to rebuild a community, to, to regather, yes, in a place of worship and to rally around shared visions and values and, and then to, to, through all kinds of ministry and mission, to see the transformation of our society, to see the spiritual renewal of our, of our town and nation, to love the king and live the kingdom, to see the kingdom of God extend everywhere in every way. That's what we're going after. That's the vision for the rebuild. Amen? And so we see the completion of Nehemiah's God-given vision. To rebuild the city walls and to so reassert their identity to rebuild the temple and to bring about this spiritual renewal and to reform society, to rebuild a people by reminding them of what it means to be a witness to the world around them. But of course, none of this could have been possible for just one man or even three great men like Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. The vision was only made possible because, of the, because the returning exiles believed in and bought into the vision to rebuild Jerusalem. That's why we see Nehemiah and Zerubbabel before him boldly ask the people for help. Nehemiah is building something hugely significant, and he knows that to build anything worthwhile will be costly. And he says, hey, look, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. I can't lay every stone in the wall. I can't build every gate. I need your help. I need everyone, every single one of you to contribute somehow. Those who can provide manual labor to, to work on the wall. Those who can be on lookout, who can be praying and interceding. Those who can fight and defend us to, to be ready to do you If you recall in the story, they build the wall with a stone in one hand and a sword in the other, ready to defend themselves against opposition. Nehemiah needs people to care for the poor and to feed the people as the work goes on. And he urges the people to help. He says, I need your effort. I need your time. I need your, your skills. I need your generosity. And that's what I'm doing today. I'm asking for your help to, to roll up your sleeves and to lend your muscle, to lend your skill and your passion and your effort and your dreams and your ideas the reality of the post-pandemic church, this rebuild that we're doing is, frankly, because our teams are decimated, incredibly understaffed and creaking. We need all of you to step up again. We need you to be present in the building, as I've said. We need you to come back to church. We need you to rejoin teams. We need you to serve. And not just here on a Sunday. We need you to serve all of our ministries and mission work. Because the pandemic, frankly, has made us idle. Like we've been sit, sat on our hands at home watching church for 18 months, and God says, you've got to roll up your sleeves, follow your master Jesus, and serve. And I'm asking for your help again. We're rebuilding. And I know I can't do it on my own. I need your help. We're rebuilding, and it can't 
possibly be just down to a few committed people like the staff or like our leaders. We need everyone to contribute. To build something worthwhile requires everyone to pay the cost, everyone to contribute something. Right now, I want to be honest with you, we are far too reliant on a few. I've already mentioned that we need to rebuild all of our teams and to get everybody serving again. But financially, we are far too reliant on a few. Let me share a few statistics with you, which I found, frankly, quite alarming. Did you know that in the last six months, just 65 people have given regularly every month? That's less than 13% of our adult membership of over 500 people. In total, less than half the church have given anything at all in the last six months. Less than half the church. And I also have discovered that 4% of our adult members give 40% of our regular income. Let that sink in. 4%, the top 20 givers, give 40% of our annual income. Imagine if just 4% of the Israelites helped Nehemiah rebuild the walls. I doubt it would ever, ever have been completed. They would have run out of resources and Nehemiah would have got far too discouraged. Nehemiah knew he needed help from every single person. They were rebuilding something really important and he needed everyone to contribute. We're rebuilding and we need your help. And like I said at the front end, I'm unashamedly asking you for your help with the rebuild and to ask you to give. When Nehemiah arrived, and he saw the ruined walls, he must have been pretty demoralized and discouraged in his heart at the scale of the rebuild before him. Let me give you some context as to the scale of our rebuild. See, due to the pandemic and, understandably, people unable to meet and then people getting discouraged and then people starting to check out and stopping coming, we have seen a lot of people stop giving. And as a result, we have seen a loss of income in the last 12 months of over £2,000 per month. Over £2,000 per month. We have taken a big hit financially, and we need your help to rebuild. Now look, to those of you who have given generously and are giving generously, I want to say thank you. I want to say a really, really big thank you. And I fully expect that you will be the ones most likely to increase your giving when we have a response moment at the end of this service. Because that's what you've consistently done again and again. You've given and then you've given more. And I want to say thank you and to honor you. You've already been so generous. Thank you. But maybe if you're going to do anything, I would want to ask those of you who already live an incredibly generous lifestyle to influence those in your spheres to, to, to disciple people, maybe people in your life group, and to ask them the question of how they're going to respond to the rebuild that we're doing right now, and to disciple into a, into a lifestyle of generosity. Because this is a discipleship issue. Generosity is 
a discipleship issue. It's, it's to do it, it's a matter of the heart. To those of you who give, but only give a small portion or a small proportion of your income, who don't tithe or give anywhere near 10%, you give a little bit, and I'm grateful for that, but it doesn't really hurt. It doesn't really cost you. To be honest, you hardly notice it or feel it. I want to ask you today to step up and to give sacrificially and to give radically and generously. It is supposed giving, giving our first fruits and our best is supposed to hurt a bit. Because remember, if you want to build anything of significance, it is supposed to cost you something. And I want to ask those of you who are giving or have given in the past, but who aren't tithing, to seriously think about giving 10%. Now, that is super easy maths. Think of how much you earn or how much comes into your bank account in whatever form and work out what 10% of that. And, and I would encourage you to give 10% gross, pre-tax. There is a stunning example of what a people committed to a grand vision for spiritual and societal renewal looks like in the story of Nehemiah. Because after Ezra, bless him, has read nonstop the law for seven days straight, the people are utterly captivated by what the kingdom life looks like. And part of their response is to recommit themselves to a relationship with Yahweh God. In the Old Testament language, that is to, to covenant themselves to God. It's, a covenant is like a promise or a pledge, if you like. And they promise, as part of this renewed covenant relationship with God, they promise, they pledge to give 10% of all they have and all they will harvest. It's a beautiful heart moment of worship in Nehemiah 10. It's amazing. For those of you that aren't giving anything at all, I want to encourage you to start giving. Maybe 10% feels a really big and scary number right now, but I want to encourage you to start that journey of giving something away and begin to live a, a more generous life. And I want to just gently but firmly challenge you, because if you can afford any of life's small luxuries, if you can afford gym membership, if you can afford a phone, if you can afford a takeaway coffee once a week, you can afford to give something. You absolutely can. And as I've said, as, as, as I do, my conviction is that we should be giving 10%. It's biblical. Yes, I know it's in the Old Testament law, and we're not under law, we're under grace now, but it's still a brilliant guiding principle for us today. I, I love it because I think it's incredibly fair because it is proportional it doesn't matter what you earn. It doesn't matter if you earn a lot or a little. It doesn't matter if you give a lot or a little because we can all give 10%. But very few people give 10% nowadays. Which got me thinking. I thought, I wonder what it would look like if everyone took this bit of biblical instruction seriously and actually gave 10%. Now, I'm pretty rubbish at math, so I asked Beth, our brilliant bookkeeper, to do the maths for me. And I asked her, what would, it, what would our income be if every adult of working age in our church family earned the national average income? So that's about 450 adults. Earned the national average income, which is about 26,000 pounds a year. And if they gave 
Guess what the annual income of our church would be? With gift aid included, our annual income, if everyone gave 10% and earned the average national wage, our income would be over £1 million a year. That would overnight more than triple our turnover. And I know that lots of us earn more than the national average income, lots more than £26,000 a year. So, today I want to ask you to give, to make a sacrifice, to offer, to offer a sacrifice of worship, which I know is a big ask. I know that it's costly. I want to ask you to commit to giving generously and regularly. And I know it will cost us. But honestly, if you are going to build anything of significance, anything worthwhile, whether you're building a home or you're building a business or you're building a family or you're building a church, Anything worthwhile is going to cost you. It's going to involve sacrifice. It's supposed to. If you're building something of significance like that, the best bit is that it is so incredibly worth it. It is so incredibly worthwhile. You ask Anyone who's ever built anything, whether the sacrifice was worth it, I bet you they'll say yes. Listen to the interviews at the every episode of Grand Design when Kevin MacLeod sits down in this stunningly architecturally built house and they have literally put blood, sweat and tears into that home and they, their marriage has nearly fallen apart and they've gone over budget and they've taken way too long and he sits down in front of them with a nice coffee and says, how much have you, wow, you've really overspent. And then he says to them, would you do it again? Was it worth it? They always say yes. They always say, look, it cost us nearly everything, but absolutely it was worth it. Ask any successful small business entrepreneur, maybe someone who gets the funding from Dragon's Den and sees their dream or their, their product actually in the shops and their, 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 their little baby of a business become come, like something. Ask them if it was worth all the toil and investment and hard work and sleepless nights and graft. Absolutely it was worth it. Ask any parent. Ask any parent when they see their child grow up confident and secure and fulfilled and they've given them every opportunity they could have given that child. Ask them if the investment of time and, and all the money and love and sleepless nights and discipline, if all of that investment was worth it, every single parent would say yes, absolutely. It's been the best thing I've ever invested in. And ask any church leader. Who's played their part in building a church family. If the sacrifice and the cost was worth it. To see people come to know Jesus. 
to see people get baptized. We've got another baptism at the beach today. To see people get baptized, to see lives transformed, to see people impacted by the gospel, to see people who are hopeless find hope, to see people who are living in darkness come into the light, to see people find faith and family, to see disciples making disciples, to see marriages restored, to see kids' futures completely like redeemed, to, to, to be part of the fight against poverty and injustice. Ask them if it was worth it. 100% they'll say yes. Of course it was worth it. Because whenever you build anything of significance or worth, yes, it will cost you. But it is so, so worthwhile. So, my friends, I want to ask you to invest with us in the rebuild. The rebuilding of a community with a strong identity. The rebuilding in this place of worship where we can gather again. The rebuilding where we can, can take part in the activity of worship. And yes, all of the ministry and all of the mission of church where the vision is the same. It's to love the king and live the kingdom. It's to see in our day the spiritual renewal of our town and our nation and the world to see the kingdom of God come here in Bournemouth as it is in heaven. Amen.